Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 73, Astrophysical Prison Break. And I am so excited to talk about things escaping. So I wanted to start off with some intro questions for you guys. All right, let's hit it. First off, what exactly does it mean for an object or light to escape? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mostly thought about how there are lots of different meanings to this, and I think it depends on whether we're talking about a photon or matter itself. And astrophysicists have set up ways to talk about both of these things, and I think mostly when we're talking about light and thinking about how it escapes and how easily it'll escape from a material, we'll probably talk about optical depth, which is a logarithmic measure of the ratio of incident to transmitted light through a medium. So you might learn more about that if you pick up your radiative transfer book. And higher optical depths mean that less light will come through the region versus lower. So there's more scattering and absorption of the photons. And that optical depth is frequency dependent. So for example, a common optical depth is two-thirds, which I remember using a bunch in my radiative transfers class. It was just like tau equals two-thirds. It's the only optical depth I think I remember relatively exactly. It's probably not exact, but it helps define the sun's photosphere. So where the optical depth within the sun is two-thirds, that's sort of the rough estimate for where the sun's photosphere is, and that's where the bulk of visible light is emitted. I also think about, for matter, the impact parameter as kind of the boundary gravitationally as to where things will be affected by a gravitational object or will be able to escape. So this is important in planetary formation, actually, which I'm sure Kirsten will know way more about. We love planets. We love planets. (laughs) So if we think about planets that form starting with the formation of their rocky core, the dust grains that will actually go into forming the rest of the planet will only be accreted if at some distance from that planetary core forming, Gravitational acceleration is strong enough to actually pull it towards the planet and give it that kick. Otherwise, it will escape and not come towards the accreting planet. So I'm sure there's a lot of different parameters that come into play there and depends, you know, on the temperature, particle sizes, disk gas, surface density, lots of different things. This is actually a fluid problem I had like three years ago and I pulled it out and I was like, I want to look at this because I remember (laughs) thinking about dust grains escaping for planetary formation. When I was teaching Astronomy 102 last summer, I actually didn't really understand why molecular clouds, the regions that form stars, have to be cold for star formation to work. But as you said, the gravitational collapse has to overcome thermal pressure. So it's actually a warm gas that will resist gravity the best. 
So only the cold gases will enable gravity to overwhelm them because they don't have much thermal pressure to push back against. So it finally clicked as to why stars form from the coldest regions and not from the warmer regions. So do protoplanetary disks tend to be colder? It depends on where you're at within the disk, right? So if you're really far out, that's where we think that a lot of these larger planets form, like Jupiter's, because you can accrete a lot more mass out there, particularly hydrogen and helium, that's most abundant. But also, I can't imagine that the temperature doesn't play a role in being able to accrete more, like you're talking about, Will. Right, yeah, it's probably related, but the key difference is at the time you have the protoplanetary disk, you have a protostar that's actually emitting and bathing the whole center of the disk in radiation. So it's a different environment than when you have a star with no real source of radiation. But I also want to add on to something you said, Sabrina. Um, one of the ways that I first thought about optical depth when I learned about it was fog. And you can imagine, you know, the foggier the day, the harder it is to see car headlights. And they're still there, but they don't cut through the fog. They get blocked and you end up with an optically thick day, which is pretty rare, but it is cool when it happens. Optically thick day. <laughs> Yeah, you don't see that in the weather report. Today's going to be optically thick with a high in the 60s. No, it, that's not how it goes. We should definitely start talking about the weather that way. But this actually is a really nice segue into my next question, which is exactly what is extinction and how can that keep light from escaping? Well, 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs were wiped out <laughs> by a large... no. That is extinction, but it's not the extinction that astronomers are talking about. We talk about extinction as anything that can block light. And in particular, we talk about absorption and scattering. And these are most often caused by dust and gas because the bulk of the universe is made of dust and gas. So the case of scattering, light comes in from one direction but it bounces around and loses its directionality, and then it sort of leaves the medium gradually from all directions. So it becomes isotropic, the light, even though it came in as, say, a beam, it comes out in every direction, and then it's so weak that you might not even pick it up. Absorption is the act of the energy from the light being used to excite a medium, and then when the electrons in that medium fall back down to their ground level, they will emit isotropically, but they won't emit the same light that was absorbed. It could be a series of different bands, it will definitely be in different directions than the light came in. And so the problem to some degree with extinction is it's destroying information. Light came in with some information, it leaves with different information. And this is super annoying. In particular, you have the case of interstellar reddening, where it turns out the universe is covered in this dust that causes light to preferentially scatter in the blue, which means the red makes it through, and everything we see is slightly redder than it actually is which is annoying because everything is actually slightly redder than it really is because the universe is expanding. So we have to disentangle these effects to measure one of the most important properties of the universe. And we also have to look through our own atmosphere to see almost everything, aside from the few telescopes we have in space. And that means there's dust in the atmosphere, there's water and other molecules that absorb light from very particular wavelengths, and there are things that we just can't see through the atmosphere. Yeah, it's super interesting. Luckily, I think lots of dust astronomers have really comprehensive or relatively comprehensive dust maps that they build up so that they can account for this 
somewhat in their observations? I feel like light's always really tricky. Objects themselves are tricky as well. So one last question for you guys before we get into these astrobites. What sort of thresholds do objects have to overcome to be unbound from their systems? And how is that different from light? Well, I talked a bit about impact parameter. I think that's a key thing to think about when you're discussing thresholds that have to be overcome because that's sort of like the boundary where the object's gravitational pull on something is important. But also, I mean, if we think about black holes, there's a lot of really interesting thresholds, especially the Schwarzschild radius, which is the size that an object would have to be to become a black hole, which is really interesting. I actually, I was in a cafe over the weekend and someone behind me was like, the Schwarzschild radius of Jupiter is like 2.8 kilometers. I think that's actually (laughs) wrong. (laughs) I didn't want to go back and correct them. Do you know what it is? I happen to know that for the sun, it's about the size of Manhattan, about 11 miles, which is not a very useful measurement. And I thought for like Earth, isn't it almost like the size of a grain of sand or something like that? It's like super, super small for Earth. We've got an upper and lower bound. (laughs) It's actually 2.8 meters. So I think they just confused meters with kilometers. So it's the radius at which you will not escape becoming a black hole if you're an object. Oh, and for Earth, Kirsten, the Schwarzschild radius is about a marble, about nine millimeters. Okay, so pretty small. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to get marbleized. I don't know about you. (laughs) So Sabrina, your answer in talking about black holes is saying light will always escape unless you end up with a black hole, right? And then light is sort of bound to the system. I didn't talk about the event horizon, though. That's true. But that's another important aspect in thinking about black holes is the boundary at which light cannot escape. And then we might call it bound. But I was thinking about light being bound to a system in terms of like a gas. And the light is sort of stuck within the gas because it's so optically thick that no light escapes. And if the gas then thins out, at some point it'll become optically thin and... We will be able to see it. And that's basically the story of the early universe, where the entire universe was a hot, dense gas cloud with lots of radiation just bouncing in every possible direction. And at some stage, it suddenly became optically thin, and then the light just started traveling in one direction and not stopping. And that is the cosmic microwave background that we still see, because that light has still been traveling ever since that moment in the early universe. In that sense, all the light in the universe was bound in one system and then suddenly became unbound. Opaque soup, as they call it, right? Delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it would be a very cold soup. I don't know if anyone likes their soup cold. At least it would be a cold soup now. The CMB was about 3,000 Kelvin when it was emitted. So pretty hot and sticky. Yeah, but in terms of space temperatures that is pretty cold but in terms of soup temperatures it's really hot (laughs) okay okay enough about soup so now it's time to hear sabrina's astrobite where she's going to tell us about light and what its escape plan is for some of these galaxies 
Yeah, thanks, Kirsten. So my astrobite is called A Galactic Prison Break, Tracing Lyman Alpha Escape at High Redshift. High Redshift being like cosmic noon, actually. So the redshift that I'll be talking about today is actually about 2.84. When I talk about high redshift in my intro, I mean like above six. So this astrobite is by Delaney Dunn, and it's on a paper that was accepted to APJ this year by Kikuda et al. So kind of leading off of what Will was talking about with recombination, where we have this like surface of last scattering, there's this like neutralization happening. So that might kind of give you a clue to the fact that approximately 75% of the universe is hydrogen, and the other part is about 23 to 25% helium. So hydrogen is a really essential element in understanding the history of our universe. I think we've probably talked about it before as it relates to the 21 centimeter line, which is what radio astronomers use to study the evolution of the matter distribution of our universe with time. And it's from the spin flip transition. So where electron spin flips from aligned to misaligned and emitting a 21 centimeter photon. One of the cool things about this line is individual electrons take like, what, a million years to actually make this transition or something like that? Yeah, but because there's so much neutral hydrogen, it ends up that we can actually still trace the matter distribution. It is super, super rare if you do the math, yeah. That is super cool. Yeah, that something so rare is so useful for us because there's just so much stuff in the universe. So although we won't be talking about the 21 centimeter line, we'll be talking about the same element today and just a different transition within hydrogen, which is the Lyman alpha emission. So Lyman alpha emission happens when hydrogen transitions from its first excited state to its lowest energy ground state, and it produces UV photons at 121.6 nanometers. And so again, with this redshifted Lyman alpha emission, we can understand the redshift that the light came from. For example, in this paper today, they talk about using visible light. So Redshifted Lyman alpha from about redshift equals two ends up being visible at all of our optical telescopes, which is really useful because we have a lot of optical telescopes. So what you're saying is, is they're able to tell exactly what redshift something is just by figuring out what band it actually falls within when they're observing it. Yeah, exactly. And this paper actually centers around a resolved image of Lyman alpha emission from a cluster of galaxies using the Hyper Supreme Cam on Subaru on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And it uses the G band for green, which is an optical filter for redshifted UV photons. So to look at the UV continuum, and then a narrow band filter specifically for the Lyman alpha spectral line at this redshift. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So the Lyman alpha line is that important? It's that important. There's actually filters on optical telescopes specifically to trace Lyman alpha emission, which is amazing. So this paper uses this resolved galaxy cluster and looks specifically at the rest frame UV emission and how the Lyman alpha distribution changes as a function of radius. So there are a bunch of galaxies in this cluster. There's 3,500 Lyman alpha emitters. So actually, the reason that they found this cluster in the first place was because there's a quasar at the center, which is this highly accreting supermassive black hole where matter is being accreted or pulled onto it. So it's actually even brighter than the galaxy itself, the quasar. So they found the quasar and they're like, whoa, there's actually this cluster of Lyman alpha emitters all around this quasar. So that's really interesting. Let's actually go and image it. 
By building up a radio profile of the Lyman Alpha mission, the authors can then kind of quantify the size and shape of the Lyman Alpha mission from each of these galaxies. And they can put all of the galaxies into what they call subsamples or just groups. Basically, they take the galaxies that have this much Lyman Alpha emission or this much UV emission or this distance from the quasar. So they say like near or far from the quasar and they put them into a bunch of different groups and they do a common statistical technique to study the universe, which is they stack them. So they put all the images on top of each other and average. It's a bit more fancy than I'll explain. So by stacking up the images, they create a much higher signal to noise than they would if they just used one galaxy itself, right? Right. You're stacking, you're building up the signal to noise through averaging. And actually, this astrobit had a really nice line in it, which was that their expectations matched really well with what they saw in the stacked images. They saw that for the larger galaxies, which should be forming more stars since they have larger swaths of hydrogen in them, they also had correspondingly more extended Lyman Alpha emission, which is what they expected. That hardly ever happens where you end up getting <laughs> what you actually expect. Right? I know. It was like such a refreshing line to read. They also found some trends in the way that they split up the groups by galactic environment. So they found, one, that the size of the Lyman Alpha mission was actually not affected by how distant the galaxies were from the central quasar. But the shape and spatial distribution of the Lyman Alpha mission was affected by that. So galaxies that were further from the quasar had more Lyman Alpha escape towards the center, but then dropped off fast toward the outer parts of the galaxy. I'm assuming that they're going to tell us a reason why they would expect that. Well, I think this is also a key point of the paper, is that the same amount of hydrogen maybe they see in the different galaxies near and far from the quasar, but the quasar actually excites the gas, so it changes how much the hydrogen atoms absorb the Lyman alpha emission, so that both towards the center and outer regions, the Lyman alpha emission is a lot easier versus towards the outer galaxies or that are further from the quasar. That's why they see that drop off because it doesn't extend the area that the Lyman alpha emission can actually escape from. But there's always the caveat. This could be an observational bias. They said that maybe they missed something because the galaxies are moving really fast. You know, this is a super gravitationally excited system. Did we say that? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a super massive black hole. So maybe they missed other fast-moving galaxies around the quasar just because they're using this narrowband filter and it doesn't capture the quickly-moving galaxies that also have Lyman-alpha emission around the central quasar. Thanks to all these Lyman-alpha emitting galaxies and this awesome resolved galaxy cluster image, we can actually get some hints into understanding galaxy evolution and galaxy clusters, which are really hard to study. But... Thanks to Lyman Alpha, it's a bit easier. And it's actually interesting how they say that this wasn't actually that long of a time to look at such a faraway galaxy to extract so much interesting science. If we have a bunch of Lyman Alpha emitting galaxies, we actually don't need as much telescope time than we would for other galaxy clusters potentially at that redshift that aren't as strong in Lyman Alpha. But of course, follow-up with JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, would allow us to do this to much higher precision. 
and really understand what affects Lyme and alpha escaping. I don't know if these authors already put in a proposal, but they'll probably do something like that in the future. I'm, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really exciting paper. And I think interesting to see just how much you can extract as someone who is just starting to think about observing from 8.5 hours of observations. This is like a 30-page paper. <laughs> so it's cool. That's crazy. A 30-page paper? Yeah. But also a very interesting result. And thanks for presenting that bite. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. So it's time for our space sound. And I'm actually really excited. Whoa, to whoa, shape. whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't have space sounds. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, Let me see. The illustrious song of the cosmic noise. I don't know. It's time to break free from the boring sounds of yesteryear and launch into the cosmic noise of tomorrow. Oh, I love that. Okay, we're going to go with that. What do you guys think? It was really interesting because it sounded like something that was periodic that was kind of fading out towards the end. Like initially there was like this tone that was repeating relatively periodically and I was trying to see if it stayed that way, but it didn't. So I don't know, something periodic that's accreting, trying to work in the theme of the episode. I think it's the orbits of a planetary system, but... Not a planetary system that I can think of. Okay. Are these your final guesses? Yes. Mine is really vague, so I have more potential to be right. And yet? (laughs) (laughs) And, Will, you are very, very close. All right. Oh, my gosh. So this is our solar system in the asteroid belt. So it's basically all the planets that are within the asteroid belt, and they basically added the period of a planet as you were going in. So like Mars, Earth, Venus, and so on, they were being added. So that's why it became jumbled, or you heard more periodic sounds. So you heard a ding every single time it completed one orbit. So what was the rumble that you heard at the beginning? That was the asteroid belt. So those are all the orbits of the asteroid belt, and then the the, the louder dings are the planets? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, that was a really great transition here. Yeah, well, that's what I was going for. I know my transition to the space sound wasn't satisfactory, but (laughs) hopefully it'll be satisfactory to transition to your astrobite. But once again, this was done by System Sounds, which I feel like at this point, you know, 
It's not surprising. They always do a phenomenal job. <laughs> With that, it's now time for Will's Astrobite, where he's going to take us through Homer's Odyssey, and we're going to hear about the Trojans breaking free from their orbital prison in this case. Yep, that, that's exactly right. The Astrobite I'm presenting is called Letting the Trojans Out of the Horse, Trojan Asteroids Escape Their Orbits. And this was written by Allie Crisp uh, about a paper called Stability of Jupiter, Trojans, and Their Collisional Families. Nice, succinct title. Written by Tim Holt and others. And that was published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society in 2020. Now, I should say, Tim Holt was on this show a few years ago. I think it was before your time. And we did a two-part episode, one on his research, and then we did a segment on his experience getting into astronomy that we put into our episode called The Road Less Traveled. So if you haven't heard that, those were fun interviews to do, and Tim is a cool guy. But this astrobite summarizing his work, which he talked about, as I recall, is about Trojans, which are a class of minor planet, and essentially how they evolve in the solar system and whether or not we could use them to study the primordial solar system and how it formed. One of the cool things that Tim does as part of his research group is called astrocladistics, which is a method for classifying small bodies in the solar system that's grounded in biology. It sort of uses taxonomic ranks to classify which things are close to each other and likely shared in evolutionary history and which things are much further from each other evolutionarily. And this is really important in the run-up to the Lucy mission, which is set to visit pairs of Trojans. It launched two years ago, and it will arrive at the Trojans in 2027 and stay there for as long as it can last. Now, before I go any further, I should tell you what are the Trojans. They are a class of minor planet. They are not technically asteroids, because asteroids have to be in the inner solar system. And the Trojans are a class of minor planet that orbits with Jupiter. Or that's at least how they're commonly referred to. Okay, I feel like I have talked to way too many people about why Pluto isn't a planet anymore. So I've got Pluto on the brain. Are the Trojans around the size of Pluto or are they bigger or smaller? Smaller, much smaller. Yeah, we're talking uh, kilometers, tens of kilometers, hundreds of kilometers in diameter and i think pluto is close to a thousand or probably more than a thousand kilometers in radius so they're much smaller and because jupiter is so big jupiter's gravity dominates the asteroid belt and the outer solar system classes of minor planets and the trojans orbit with jupiter ahead and behind, sort of like 30 degrees ahead and 30 degrees behind in stable spots created by Jupiter's orbit. And all the planets can have Trojans. Earth can have some Trojans, and those really are Trojan asteroids. But when we talk about Trojans in the solar system, we're talking about the ones at Jupiter because that's the lion's share of them. And there are thousands of them known, and going to be many, many more once the future surveys come online and as well as Lucy gets in there. So the goals of this study were to determine the escape rates of the Trojans, that is, can they break free of their orbits, and better understand the stability of the collisional family. So within the Trojans, the ahead and behind groups, there are individual collisional families that 
orbit as a group. And because they're collisionally bound, they probably have a similar history. So if you can understand one, you can understand the whole group and maybe how the whole thing came to be, which is great for understanding the origin and the future of the solar system. To study the Jupiter Trojans, in this case, they used n-body simulations. An n-body simulation is tracking the center of mass of each object and simulating how it would move gravitationally. Now, n-body simulations are really powerful, but they can be really computationally expensive. It depends how much resolution you want. And in this case, they modeled the Jupiter system with its Trojans for the entire age of the solar system with a time step of 1 30th Jupiter's orbital period, which to me seems crazy because the age of the solar system is really long and 1 30th of Jupiter's orbital period is really short. So that it sounds like a pretty powerful n-body simulation. Was the point of this paper to build off of observations of these Trojans? It doesn't sound like they did any observations themselves. They're just more like following up with what they've learned from other observations and trying to recreate what they saw. Right. So they used the real Trojans distribution in the Jupiter system in their simulations. They just didn't try to discover new ones. They were trying to identify over time how many of these would be lost, what the general population is that could be lost to see are the ones that we see primordial or did they get captured by Jupiter only, you know, 20 minutes ago and we just weren't looking. So this was a cool study, a nice simulation. And what they found is that 23 to 25% of the Trojans will escape over the lifetime of the solar system. And they found that within the Trojans, there are six distinct collisional families. And in fact, Tim and others have gone on to do additional work, further classify these families, discover more collisional families, and further classify those. And I'll mention that in a sec. But 23 to 25%, that means like three quarters of them will survive the entire history of the solar system. That is cool. So what are they defining as the whole lifetime of the solar system? Are they doing any forward modeling or just up until the current state that we have right now? So it's not like they simulated the whole solar system. So they just simulated the Jupiter system with its asteroids for four and a half billion years. Okay. And the idea being that if it survived that long, it can probably survive. But yeah, obviously, like the very early solar system, things wouldn't have survived because they were still gas. And it has to be like after the planets formed and things sort of calmed mm -hmm. down. And if there were all sorts of planetary migrations and stuff, this probably goes out the window. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. So it's not to say that they, they did survive the history of the solar system. It's to say that they could survive a theoretical solar system that had some level of stability for four and a half billion years. So is the actual orbital stability the key thing in having them survive versus just colliding with another planet and making a giant impact? Like what's the thing that's allowing them to survive? The orbital dynamics? Well... I think it's because Jupiter is really massive and because the spots that they orbit are stable Lagrange points. So without something seriously disruptive, they'll be stable for a good long time. And I guess they don't disrupt themselves. I'm not really sure about this, but I'm sort of um, speculating that there has to be something about the groups of Trojans as they form and coalesce into their regions where they sort of stabilize themselves. And all of the instabilities in the initial ones would get thrown away real quick. So if they survive entry into the Jupiter system and capture, then they're kind of like 
stuck there to survive for a long time. But 25% loss is not nothing, right? That's, that's still pretty significant from, you know, the largest planet in the solar system. This is a good result because what it means from the Lucy mission as it makes its way out there and as we learn, I mean, we're going to discover heaps of these Trojans from Roman Observatory and the Rubin Observatory. It's going to make it possible to better understand the history of the solar system by observing these. Because the more you know about how many they are, where they're located, then you can run these models and say, well, these are pretty likely to have been around for billions of years. And then if Lucy flies by one of them and does a chemical analysis, you can say, well, this is actually a chemical composition that might have existed four and a half billion years ago. And we can demonstrate that's true. And this ties into Tim's newer work doing astrocladistics in classifying the types of these Trojans. And the idea is to create this hierarchical clustering like we see in biology. And this makes it possible for Lucy or Reuben or Roman to get information about one type of Trojan and say, well, that means we actually know about this other type as well. And we know that these ones are stable and we know that they formed from here. And this whole group is made of the same elements. And so now it's like knowing the different evolutionary history between humans, chimpanzees, and cats and saying we learned something important about chimps like does that tell us about humans or does that tell us about cats? And, you know, that's his motivation for this type of work in the outer solar system. So I think it's really cool stuff. That is extremely interesting, though. That's super cool that they're going to be able to really, like, observe these and really understand, you know, the dynamical history. And also I think it would be interesting to see what their models predict for the future. Like, do they predict the same amount of escape of these Trojans or do they expect, you know, that there will be less as the system evolves, which I think is super cool. But either way, super interesting astrobite. Absolutely. Okay, I think it's time for our one sentence summaries. So Sabrina, you want to take it away? Sure. This astrobite explains how the journey and escape of many Lyman alpha photons as they traverse galaxies in a galaxy cluster allows us to measure galaxy properties and points to clues about how the cluster evolved. And what about you, Will? My high school mascot was the Trojan, <laughs> so I feel a sense of pride about the stability of Jupiter's Trojans, with only about a quarter of them being lost over the lifetime of the solar system. I like that. Aw. <laughs> no Trojans! All right, so what do you have for us, Kirsten? What discussion questions should we do? My first question for you guys is how rare do you think it is for light or, you know, asteroids or whatever astrophysical objects we have to escape their systems? Do you think it's happening regularly? What do you think the frequency of that is? I think it's super regular. I mean, if we think about things on the scale of the universe, as Will talked about earlier during recombination, where protons and electrons combine to form neutral atoms, that then was sort of undone when the universe was ionized again during reionization. So I think on cosmological scales, this is just an ongoing thing of light escaping and being trapped and reabsorbed sort of depends on what part of the universe's history you're thinking about. I think you're absolutely right for light. Though, I just want to point out, the phrase recombination really irks me because it was the first time they were combined. It should just be combination. Oh, that's a good point. But well, there's a reason why it's re, isn't it? Isn't there a reason? 
while you look that up, I will say <laughs> that I think you're right about light. Light is almost always sort of escaping from things, which is why we know about the universe. Otherwise, we would know almost nothing. I think objects only rarely escape. For example, we don't see a lot of free-floating planets. We don't see a lot of rogue galaxies not in clusters. It seems like things are sort of uh, stuck together. Yeah, and recombination, by the way, is very misleading. It was coined before the Big Bang Theory came into ah. the primary theory of the creation of our universe. Oh, that's interesting. According to Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia is a reliable source. I know they always say don't cite it, but like how many times has it actually been wrong? Like for big topics, especially when there are a lot of references, it's pretty reliable. Don't go asking high school librarians because no, no, no. I know. <laughs> it sounds like we don't think that objects or at least light escaping is that rare. So why do you guys think that it's always seems like such a huge topic when we have something escaping from something that it's bound to? Like why are prison break movies so captivating? Basically, <laughs> like why is it so interesting for like a exoplanet to get launched out of its system when the system's forming why do you think that is culturally why we care about that i mean i feel like at least in terms of my astrobite the whole aspect of the lyman alpha escape is like key in studying the galaxy cluster and i'm sure for planetary dynamics like the fact that the trojan asteroids didn't escape and will remain in a stable orbit it's like a key part in understanding the science, and the stable systems that exist around the escaping things. This is the thing about astronomy. If there were only like a few of the things that exist, each one is its own paper. <laughs> and if there are a lot of things, you need to do a population study or a Monte Carlo or some other sort of complex machine learning algorithm, and then you get a paper published. So if there's one free-floating planet, you're like, I found it. Here it is, guys. Like, let's learn everything we can about it. <laughs> That's my theory. Does the act of actually escaping make it easier to study, maybe, also? Because it's separated from this larger system or something like that? Like, if you're talking about free-floating planets. I don't know. Maybe we all deep down have a yearning for liberty just to be free <laughs> of our shackles and wander the universe. So when we when we see something... Like that, we're just, we're just captivated. In awe. How could it possibly do such a, an amazing feat? At least for what Sabrina was saying, aside from light, anything else escaping from what it's bound to, I feel like that would make it harder to observe most of the time. Mm. Which is why we don't see many, perhaps. It could be a selection effect. Oh, this is true. The universe is filled with free-floating planets. They just don't radiate at all, and they're impossible to see. Exactly, and that's the solution to dark matter. Just a whole bunch of planets. Oh, we solved it. It's planets. <laughs> okay, I think that that should wrap us up. I will say so. Okay, so that concludes episode 73, Astrophysical Prison Break. Remember, when you're conducting your prison breaks, you should always avoid dust and large objects so you don't get recaptured. <laughs> And if you want to learn about the universe through sound, you can check out our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever else you can get your podcast from. And if you want to learn more about the astrobytes we talked about today, you can find them linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.
unshackle yourself from the bounds of your podcasting app. Adventure among the stars, listening to Astro Soundbites. <laughs> exactly. Is that helpful? Oh yeah, totally helpful.